Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by OldSchoolShirts.com. Hey, check them out. You like defunct teams and leagues and T-shirt form? Well, you'll find them there, but a whole bunch of other stuff, too. Do you remember a radio station of the past or perhaps a mall that you used to go to? All kinds of great cultural and sports memories can be found at the great folks at OldSchoolShirts.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. And now, here's our show. Raycom Sports and Jefferson Pilot Teleproductions present exclusive live coverage of Atlantic Coast Conference basketball. Tonight, live from the Dean Smith Student Activity Center in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, the Maryland Terrapins take on the University of North Carolina Tar Heels. Tonight's game is being brought to you by Piedmont Airlines, NCNB, the Jefferson Pilot Companies, Natural Light, South Carolina National, Subaru, Food Lion, Gillette, and by Central Fidelity. Maryland and North Carolina from the Smith Center in Chapel Hill. Good evening, everybody. I'm Mike Patrick along with Dan Bonner, and it's great to have you with us for Atlantic Coast Conference basketball tonight. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, hello everybody. It's your pal Tim Hanlon, and it's Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. How are you? Thanks for finding us. We appreciate it. And uh, yeah, well, okay, Mike Patrick sets the tone. Uh, the great Mike Patrick, the uh, underrated Mike Patrick, um, now retired, longtime ESPN and other places broadcaster. But in the mid-1980s, uh, one of his gigs was at the place that we're going to be talking about this week, our visit to the story behind the founding of Raycom Sports with its founders, Rick and D. Ray, and you're going to say, well, wait a minute, this is uh, usually about uh, professional sports. Well, come on. College sports has kind of always been sort of winking and blinking and nodding towards uh, professionalism uh, in many respects for a long time and is really now on the cusp, if not already, uh, a professional kind of endeavor. Plus, we also like to squint hard uh, in topics that are sort of you know, tangential and related to our little sort of core focus and and television and broadcasting and, and some of the uh, origination stories about some of those. We did the uh, early days and the founding of the NFL today, for example, and, and plenty of other examples that we've done over the years. But but this one's too uh, interesting to pass up. And look, if you grew up in the, uh, uh, the southeastern portion uh, of the United States, uh, you know this story quite well uh, if you were from parts otherwhere, otherwise or otherwhere or elsewhere. There you go. That's what I'm trying to say. You're probably at least uh, somewhat familiar with the name Raycom because if an ACC game was hitting your airwaves uh, in the uh, uh, 1980s, 1990s, hell, all the way up till uh, uh, 2019, frankly, Raycom uh, existed uh, in their sports arm, legendarily uh, connected to uh, not only college sports, but in particular, the Atlantic Coast Conference. And you remember back in the late 1970s, early 1980s, 
uh, college basketball really kind of took a new level of of interest. You had the arrival of ESPN, certainly uh, in its early days, uh, looking for uh, constantly looking for programming in college sports, fitting that void in college basketball uh, in particular. Uh, you had the rise and the formation of the Big East, uh, which today lives on in its uh, second incarnation, but uh, almost set the template for what college basketball and television and big money might look like. And uh, around the same time was this uh, understanding uh, by uh, our guests this week, Rick and D. Ray, not married at the time, but uh, soon to be, uh, but in the beginning days, uh, coming together to figure out how do we take advantage of this Atlantic Coast Conference uh, basketball thing which was, you know, kind of put together and, and broadcast for years by this entity, uh, C.D. Chesley, really a guy uh, who kind of had put together these uh, these broadcasts for dozens of years, uh, kind of by hand, syndicating them to various stations uh, around the southeast. Um, but uh, through a couple of different uh, uh, exchanges of rights, uh, there was the opportunity to kind of take this thing to the next level, maybe through syndication and partnerships, uh, getting it to national, uh, more regular national exposure by being able to syndicate those games to NBC uh, or even ESPN, uh, and obviously uh, emboldening uh, the revenue opportunities uh, with, uh, frankly, more games and uh, more excitement for uh, what was arguably or maybe not so arguably, depending on the year, uh, the best or certainly one of the best uh, college basketball leagues uh, at the time. This is a, an amazing story, uh, and uh, you're going to enjoy this conversation uh, tremendously. But let's uh, let me set the tone a little bit, give you a little bit of backspin on uh, sort of this uh, history of this Raycom Sports thing. Uh, and I want to sort of play this clip. It's about two and a half minutes long, but it really is, it encapsulates a, uh, sort of what we're in for in this conversation. This is from 2019. This is the end of Raycom media which by the by that time 2019 Raycom Sports had been sold into and folded into uh, and Gray Television which now owns those assets essentially meant the end of of what of the Raycom uh, brand in its uh, in its inception this is a story from um, Chris Larson at WBTV Charlotte uh, and this is sort of around the ACC tournament finals uh, in 2019 in the spring of 2019 give a listen and you'll get a better sense of of what we're in for in this conversation coming right up they have broadcast some of the best teams and best games in college basketball. For people that are of a certain age, over 40 or so, uh, you grew up with that in your house every Wednesday or Thursday and every Saturday. It was a big deal. There's been a fantastic symbiotic relationship between Raycom and the Atlantic Coast Conference. Even as a kid growing up on Tobaccoville Road just outside of rural Hall, North Carolina, that sail with the, the pilot, pilot at, at the wheel was the mantra for all of us to stop what we were doing, go down to the living room, and be a part of Atlantic Coast Conference basketball. And for those of us that have been around for the better part of four decades in this business, it's not only professional, it's personal. Well, like Bill Walton. <laughs> the highlight of the broadcast season has always been the ACC tournament. This is an exciting week. It's our Super Bowl. 
but it's also a little melancholy because it's the last time we'll do a game on over-the-air television that's branded us. An exclusive production of Raycom Sports. There is a lot of pride in the Raycom name, and many of the crew members have been with the broadcast for decades. Ready to take. And they love what they do. You kidding me? How many people would give their left arm to be seated right here to see some of the finest athletes and some of the best coaches and teams in the entire country? I am very blessed. From keeping courtside stats to working inside the production trailer, it takes a huge team to get the broadcast on the air. We have, you know, for the tournament here, we have about 70 people. And we have, you know, our audio specialists, our tape guys, our video guys, our stage managers, our utilities, our announcers, producers, directors, our graphics. I mean, just like any team out on the court, everything's got to be working. Uh, together. Larry Nago on the bench with Terry Holland never won an ACC tournament. All the great teams that Terry had did not win an ACC tournament. And while the faces have remained familiar, one thing that has changed over the last 37 years is the technology. Well, HD, picture quality is the one thing, because if you go, we go back and look at our first, you know, our first year, 1983, and you look at the picture now, it's like night and day. And then the other part is you know, where we put cameras. They're above the rim, they're right behind the glass, they're in the hallways. It's totally different where it used to be just your standard four or five camera shoot. Now, you know, we're talking 14 or 15 all over the court. Even the way they show replays is different. Used to be slow motion replay meant slow motion tape replay, a guy winding it back and forth. Now it's a computer, it's instant. There are many more angles, there are many more graphics, there are many more things we can do. Send by red. All right, Matt. Send by red, react. And red, roll red. Think he's happy? As the clock winds down on Raycom's final game, this veteran team is reflecting on their storied history with the ACC. And through 25 years of, of producing ACC basketball, you learn how special it is. You don't do this without it becoming a part of your heart, mind, body, and soul. And we will miss this dearly. Right on cue, huh? So there you go. That again is uh, Chris Larson from WPTV in Charlotte in 2019 during the uh, the final uh, the finals of the ACC tournament, which was the uh, sort of swan song for uh, Raycom Sports and and so many great broadcasting names. And we'll get into a bunch of them. I mean, Dick Vitale made some early appearances uh, in some of the early games that Raycom put together, but some obviously well-known names like Marty Brenneman and, and Tim Brando, who you heard there, Jim Thacker and Billy Packer and uh, all kinds of great names that uh, either uh, full-time, part-time or uh, in between time uh, called the games for this uh, Raycom uh, entity, not just in the ACC, but all kinds of other stuff too. A lot of other uh, college sports uh, leagues, uh, football certainly was part of the uh, the mix. Uh, the SEC, the Big Eight, back when the Big Eight was a thing, the Big Ten when it was only ten, uh, the Southwest Conference when that was a thing, and you may saw have seen uh, Raycom uh, connoted with another uh, entity called Jefferson Pilot Communications, which they, which they partnered with uh, over over time. But um, uh, pioneering uh, stuff, uh, you know, uh, the Great Alaska Shootout. You remember those uh, early games? That was a that was the first ever televised event that that Raycom put together. They even got into bowl games. Uh, the 1990 uh, inaugural edition of the Blockbuster Bowl, uh, in many respects, kind of uh, opened the door to. Uh, the monstrosity of bowls that we have today, 
Uh, but you have to remember back in that period of time, uh, the number of bowl games and number of teams that participated in postseason play was relatively limited compared to the seemingly uh, gigantic cornucopia that we exist today. So in many respects, and this is why this conversation is uh, not only fun, but hugely educational. Uh, the beginnings of sort of what I would call big time college sports meets television and the business and the industry behind it uh, really uh, owes a direct or you can point a uh, or draw a direct line uh, to the uh, entrepreneurial efforts of our guests this week. The founders of Raycom Sports, Rick and D. Ray, that's our conversation coming up in uh, just a moment's uh, time. And uh, I, we're uh, uh, happy to have them because they are uh, out promoting uh, this uh, really awesome and fun read uh, authored by George Herthler, who is the author of this book. Uh, it's the story of these two uh, crazy kids. It's called Unstoppable, a story of love, faith, and the power couple who ignited the college sports basketball, excuse me, broadcasting boom, basketball being part of that, but broadcasting boom. That is the uh, name of the book. It, of course, is available wherever you can find good books. And we uh, encourage you, of course, to go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Search up this episode number 328 uh, with Rick and D. Ray, and uh, you'll find a convenient link to said book named Unstoppable. And uh, we don't want to stop you from getting a copy of this book. It's got uh, some uh, wonderful photos, great memories. And uh, if you grew up uh, or remember uh, the, um, I wouldn't call them the early days of college basketball, but the early modern days, perhaps the, uh, the late 1970s, the early 1980s, uh, all that stuff, the ACC, the Big East, all that kind of stuff, uh, you should know and will thoroughly enjoy reading about the story about Raycom and its formation uh, and the symbiotic relationship of such. Uh, do yourself a favor and get a copy of this book. But hey, don't just believe me. Believe this conversation and hear from the uh, the principals uh, uh, directly. And here we go with our great conversation. We were pleased uh, to have them uh, about a week and a half ago uh, on our microphones. Here's our conversation, the founding of Raycom Sports with Rick and D. Ray. Please, as always, enjoy. I really think our audience will love our sports junkie audience will love to hear a little bit about your story. Um, and I think it's lost on a, a whole generation or at least two of, of sports fans who kind of, you know, uh, are basking in a, the, a wide array of choices that when you guys kind of got together just was a, a mere fantasy given the television landscape. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. The television landscape at that point in time uh, was three channels wide. So there was ABC, CBS, and NBC. And um, sports fans had very, very limited choices. Um, in the Atlantic Coast Conference area in particular, there were 40 games that were televised every year uh, in basketball and, and maybe half a dozen games uh, in football that were televised. But that was basically it. And um, in 1979, um, after doing some research, we, we found that there was a really a, a very heavy-duty appetite for more sports programming on television. 
And um, the research really clearly showed it because in, in the ACC area, it was almost a religious experience for people. They planned every Saturday um, to, to watch college basketball and uh, they, they scrambled to find as much college football for their home teams as they possibly could find, which was very limited. Um, but it was, it was really an, an important piece of society. Um, so we had researched that. And um, right about the same time that we were, we were getting started, um, somebody said, you know, you ought to talk to, there's a new network that is being formed uh, called ESPN. The, not enter, the Entertainment N. and Sports Programming yes. Network. And it was probably a lot of entertainment, we're sure. But they did have some sports there. And we needed to look into it. So uh, we called around and finally found somebody who worked, uh, at least on a part-time basis, for this new network. And I said, I'm going to come talk to whoever I need to talk to about uh, college basketball. And they said, well, let me see if I can get it something set up. We, we got it set up, um, and it was a uh, 7.30 meeting in Bristol, Connecticut, uh, in a few days uh, to meet the president of the network. Well, I, I flew up there and, and, and somehow rented a car and got over to Bristol and was there at the Bristol Motel for the meeting. And um, Chet Simmons was the president of ESPN. And I got introduced to him in the in the hallway of the Bristol Motel. I think he was in a bathrobe, and there was a desk set out in the hallway. And we we talked about what they were doing, and uh, it was a new network, didn't have much money, and we we actually cut a deal so that they could take the game outside of the ACC area and inside the ACC area. We would be able to televise the game. And it ended up being like a 10 game package that we we negotiated, uh, but we wouldn't we would pay the rights fees. They would pay for the production. They provide the the uh, the talent. And uh, so they they got national coverage. We got the regional coverage and both of us saved money. Um, and so we cut that deal. Um, it was it was interesting because they 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 didn't they knew who the play-by-play -play announcer was going to be because he was he was on the staff and had come from ABC. Um, well, this was the first game, right? That was the first game. Well, well who was uh, playing? Carolina versus North Carolina versus North Carolina playing Detroit. Okay. At at North Carolina, um, it was Jim Simpson, you know, great announcer, and, sure, Le uh, legend, legendary uh, voice of ESPN, legend, and some ABC. mystery person. Right. Yeah. And they wouldn't tell us until like the week of the game. And Dean Smith really wanted to know who it was going to be. So go ahead, Rick. I want to set that up. So 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 we didn't know. And we finally found out it was it was this guy. Um, his name was Vita Somali or what? No, no, no. It was Vital. That's what his name was. And and he was going to be the color guy. And we got a call from Dean's office saying, like, 
we're not sure about this. No, no. He said, you better come in and meet with me. Yes, yes. And you and I went into Dean Smith's office yeah. and we sat on the edge of the sofa, worried. And he said something to the effect of, this could be your first game of mini or your last game. We don't know what he's talking about, right? So he and said, what do you mean? He said, this guy, Dick Vitale, just happened to be the former coach of Detroit. Now, if we don't know that during the game, then I think it's the first of many. And and so we went off. We didn't say anything to anybody, but uh, we were kind of white in the face. And we got a letter. You got a letter a week later, Rick. What did Dean Smith say? Oh, it, it said, it said, Dick Vitale is probably one of the best announcers that you could have possibly hired. Because during the game, of course, Vital was, look at Dino, he's unbelievable. What a guy, the greatest coach in America. On and on and on and on. And so we breathed a sigh of relief and went on to televise. Yeah, he congratulated us. Yes, too. yeah. <laughs> he was very happy with with Mr. Vital. And we were happy that, that Dick oh. was there. Oh, okay. And um, he was always a really good friend to us. Um, forever and ever and still is yeah it's it's fun to watch that clip of of his first game and just how awkward the whole but well, the whole situation right i mean espn was relatively new obviously you guys were a fledgling partnership but let me let me step back for a second before we get going in earnest in the into this story tell our audience uh, D and Ray, the uh, Ray, D and Rick. I keep calling the the Ray name, the Ray. I mean, the last name yeah. is. is oh, I keep uh, stumbling into that. Rick and You're D, tell the, me. Not the first who stumbled. No, Look. not the first. I'm sure, and <laughs> the time will be the last time in this conversation, yeah. sadly. But um, tell me uh, how you are involved in this situation in the first place. It's pretty clear to me, but maybe to our audience in this background, that you all uh, involved somehow in television at this time in the mid to late 1970s. So a little background there as to how you got into the business even before sure. meeting. Um, well, I was working for a guy named Jim Goodman who ran WRAL in Raleigh, uh, handling sure. program. Ca capital broadcasting for those outside the know, uh, probably one of the most innovative still to this day broadcasters of a, albeit small, but always uh, a challenging conventions uh, uh, and uh, a legacy of such. Yeah, w without a doubt, that's true. Just just amazing company. But Jim wanted me to research college basketball and to find out more about could his station and his company invest in maybe buy um, um, C.D. Chesley, who at, at that time was televising ACC basketball. Um, was it worth it? And I did the research and I found out there was, it was just the ratings were through the roof. I mean, in, in February, it uh, did the same kind of ratings on a day in and day out basis as the Super Bowl did. Uh, very often the ratings were 35, 45, even in, in the, 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 as they got toward the finals, it was a 90 or 95 rating, which meant that 95% of all of the people not TVs on, on, but people who lived there were actually supposed to be watching, according to Nielsen, the, these college basketball games. So I told Jim about that. And then um, 
I ended up having an opportunity to move to a newly formed independent station in Charlotte that was owned by Cy Bayhackle. And um, Cy had had um, had some problems with the station. It had lost its ABC affiliation because it wasn't very, very, um, very dynamic and had not been run the way it should have been. And uh, he had fired the general manager. And so three of us were brought in. Uh, one is the general partner. One is the sales manager and me handling programming. And Sai uh, came and said to us, well, you know, I've just put in this big satellite dish. It was it was a six meter dish. Um, so like 30, 30 feet across, huge thing. And he said, I want you to get some programming for this. Otherwise, I'll lose money. And I looked and there was essentially nothing um, on the satellite except USA and HBO were, were on uh, to a limited degree, but no other independent programming being televised. And I, I looked around and I, I to find out where there might be some college basketball. And I saw that NC State was playing in a basketball tournament in Anchorage, Alaska. And I said, there you go. There's something that we could do um, via satellite because there are no landlines between Alaska and the, and the lower 48 and um, and bring it back for the fans. And so I called up the University of Alaska and I said, well, tell me how we get a feed of this and, and who is televising it. And they, they just kind of laughed and they said, well, nobody's televising it because um, we're in Alaska. And uh, and I said, well, well, what would it what would you charge me to to televise it? And they said, uh, how about like five hundred dollars? Would that work? <laughs> I said, yeah, well, I'll do that. And um, so we proceeded to look at what we needed to do to get get the games on. Um, and they had no color cameras in the state of Alaska, as an example. They had unbelievable um, satellite kind of service because they had all the Eskimo villages had to get schooling. So the, the, it's for education. That's what the satellites were used for. So, so we, we pulled together a control room, brought in color cameras, brought in lighting for a gymnasium that was on the air force base there, Edmonton air force base and, um, and did a broadcast from there via satellite back to the lower 48. That featured NC State. I think we had NC State, Louisville, UCLA, uh, Arkansas. Um, I mean, it it was it was a who's who of basketball teams because it was a a freebie kind of game from the NCAA standpoint. You could go there, and it didn't count against the total number of games that you played. So it was a big draw for big name teams to go to Alaska and see what that was like. So and, we did I'm sorry, it. this is this is 1978, correct? Yeah, 78. Yeah. And it was it was very successful. Um, and so I I stayed with it. And then the next year I, I went to Bayhackle and said, like, maybe we could do it again. He said, No, 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 I'm I'm not I'm not interested in doing that. Um and and besides, we need to have a meeting. So so we had this meeting in the in in the 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 uh, conference room of this television station that would seat normally 60 and there were three of us there 
And we're going like, oh, well, we did the basketball tournament. Our ratings are high. We made more money in profits than they had grossed the previous year. I think it's time we're going to get a bonus. This is going to be great. And Mr. Bayhackle stood at the podium in front of us and said in his 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 voice was he was a Lebanese gentleman from Alabama. And he said, you know, you boys have done a fabulous job. Uh, I want to thank you for that. But you know what? You're all fired. I can do it myself now. And we looked, we looked at each other and say, oh, my God, we succeeded, but we're out of a job. So so uh, it wasn't more than a week, week or two later that um, we had lined up these games and uh, we decided to leave. Um, and fortunately, I had met Dee and um, felt certainly she could sell anything. And um, you want to tell them, Dee, about how we, we met and what, what I talked you into? Yeah, and your background too, Dee. Where where were you coming from in all of this? I have been with an outdoor advertising firm in Charlotte for some years. It sold to Lamar Dean Outdoor out of Florida and then Negley Outdoor out of Minneapolis. And with that sale, um, and I have been given a, a, a ownership and was GM of it. I think it was 23 or 24. And with that final sale, I had enough money to leave and start my own small independent ad agency, um, a one-person uh, shop, which was just fine. Um, I dealt trust, with- Trust uh, me, I know the dynamic, but go ahead. <laughs> the overhead is fabulous, right? Um, and so I had radio and newspaper and outdoor uh, during that time, and I built up a nice little business, but then I married a, a fellow and wound up in Indianapolis with him. That marriage did not work out, thank God. And I came back to Charlotte, and I had been back in Charlotte trying to restart my ad agency, and my former clients were great. I mean, they they helped me a lot. And one of the guys that Rick mentioned that was at Bayhackle Station was an old friend of mine. And he said, oh, I have somebody I want you to meet. So he set me up on a blind date with Rick. Rick Ray and D, what was I, Burke? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, I had to think back there. How, how yeah. quickly we forget, but yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so we went on a blind date and during that date found out that my sister or Rick had known my sister and brother-in-law since he was nine years old because we were all from Asheville originally. So Rick, uh, we started talking and after that we started going out and I, maybe three weeks after our first date, he said to me, well, I want to start this sports network. I'm going to call it Raycom. And um, Mark, the fellow that set us up on the blind date, turned me down as a partner because he didn't think I would make it. And I need someone to uh, market it for me. Would you be interested? And I said, well, uh, I, have, I have to take a some time to think about it. So I remember we... We're driving home from some restaurant where we'd had dinner. And I looked at him and said, okay, 
I'll do it. But here's the problem or situation. I don't know anything about sports and I know less about TV. And he did not miss a beat. He said, I'll teach you both. So we would, from then on, we'd go on a date and we'd come home. We'd sit at the dining room table with all those massive books that you had back then, rating books. And he would teach me ratings and reach and, you know, what played in this region of the country versus the other. And it was, he was brilliant with that. So now I'm in, right? And off we go. And I said to him, well, we since we don't have any money, how about you come into my ad agency, Burke Advertising? I will share you the revenue 50-50, and we'll use that money to try to build Raycom. And that's what we did. Well, so it, Rick, it sounds like you got kind of a two-for-one deal there. No, oh, we absolutely. got four-for-one. I had two dogs. Or three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Okay, it was. so... so Let's try to rich. Yeah. Sorry. So, right, so this, all right. So this is now at, coming after your. This is this uh, 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 meeting essentially has has come after the Great Alaska Shootout situation, and and you now, Rick, with the idea of look, I, I I've gotten some inkling of what's possible out there. I want to go on my own and and do this. Is that do I have that time frame right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's exactly. But right. he didn't say he wanted to go do my own first. Bay Hackle said something. Yeah, Bay Hackle said, you have to do it on your own. Don't you dare <laughs> use my fax machine. Don't you use my phones. Um, if you do, I, it's mine. I'm going to keep it. And I said, no, <laughs> that doesn't he work. gave that. you until three o'clock in the afternoon to make a decision. Yeah. Rick called me and he was visibly upset or audibly. And I, I picked him. I went over to the station and my little little tiny Mustang, um, not the good ones, the later ones. And we loaded my car and his car with his whatever possessions he had at work. And off we went to a tiny office. What was that building? Good Offices, Rick? Good Offices was the name of it, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was It was really classic. Wish, wish we had a picture of it. And um, we're off and running. Raycom is almost launched. Yeah. And you have to realize we were both, I was like 28 or 29. And I was, Rick, don't tell me. We were both very young and (laughs) and I had like $2,500 in the bank or something like that. And so to step out of a, of a, what was a pretty successful job, might've been not been paying that much money, but deciding to go on your own was kind of precarious. And we had, uh, and we, quickly had committed to UNC um, $84,000 for rights fees to um, a bunch of games and um, to a couple of other schools, I guess Duke, Duke, we committed some money to. So we were going to owe more, um, <laughs> way more uh, than uh, any house we'd ever bought. Uh, and or would buy for the next few years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and figured, well, there was going to be a 30-year payout to these schools if, um, like the mortgage to a house, if we didn't succeed. So, so it, would, it was we had, what, what did we have our first year? How many games did we have? South Carolina, Virginia Tech, uh, some Duke. And Duke and, and North Carolina. So eight and, North Carolina games and a total of like 12. Yeah. So now I'm out 
trying to sell what I don't know how to sell, right? And um, we needed, I think we needed $25,000 more to make a small profit and pay our rights fees that year and couldn't get any, the last client, it just couldn't get them. And somebody said to me, well, you need to call Gulf Oil. There's a guy there. And I think he'll like this. Um, this is what you have. But I went first to the ad agency in New York. And they kept saying, well, you know, the client, he doesn't really like it that much. And then I realized he had not even, oh, no, I went to see the client. And on his desk was my presentation. And you could tell it never gone off that desk. So I got the number of Jim, um, the head of marketing in, in Dallas. Was he in Dallas? Yeah. Dallas, yeah. Oil. And I called him. My voice was shaking. And he said, young lady, you need to take this to my ad agency in New York. And I said, well, I've already done that. He said, you take it back. And I did, and I got we got that deal, and it was the twenty five thousand that year gave us a small margin to live on and run the company and roll it back. One thing I said to Rick when we first met, I will do this, but we can never borrow, we can never owe any money, we can never borrow money. So now we have to have enough money to operate the next year and live on. Because we've used up, we're now going to not do Raycom, I mean, Burke Advertising, because Raycom takes all of our time. So this is going to be the only money we get. And we ran that company without debt for 17, 18 years, right? Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah. Yep. And no no outside investors. But no, noble and shrewd, but so so let's talk about that this 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 period of time now. So where were you getting these games? Because you had mentioned before that uh, this uh, C D Chesley uh, guy slash firm had pretty much been, you know, uh, in I guess in a mom and pop kind of way, been uh, kind of running the table, if you will, for the ACC games at the time. Were, yeah. were you getting games that weren't available somehow, or was there only well, a small package that he that they had, or what? Chesley had been doing it for 26 years, and he he did the first NCAA tournament um, all on his own and was doing a bunch of stuff for Notre Dame, and the ACC was another product he had. And there were 40 games that he would televise the first, the when we got involved, he was paying forty thousand dollars a year for the all the rights to college basketball for the ACC, and um, you have to you have to see that when we did the deal with North Carolina, they were getting ten thousand dollars for eight each game for eight games, so we were paying them twice as much as the whole conference was getting for their forty game season. Um, and then, so the next year, uh, the conference came alert and said, like, Mr. Chesley, we need you to step it up. How about paying us $400,000 for the season? And he, oh, I can't do that. I don't know, but okay, I will. But Ches, Chesley, I had known Ches for a, a, a number of years, gone to his house because he had television stations uh, that carried the games to come up to Grandfather Mountain where he lived. Uh, and he would play golf and get to have dinner with him and that sort of thing. And um, he, so he called me uh, one time in our, in our answer the phone in our little apartment 
and uh, said, because Ches, he had had throat cancer, still smoked. So, but he, he, he talked like this. He was like the Godfather. He said, hey, Rick, I tell you one thing. The ACC is my pie and you can't have a piece. And Dee overheard that. And she said, he's the Godfather. He lives at Godfather Mountain, not Grandfather Mountain. And we're, we're, in, in, we're up the creek. It's going to be terrible. Right, Dee? Oh, it scared me. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. it also had, it also had to scare you too that 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 he had such a, a long history as well, which probably yeah. didn't help your uh, entrepreneurial uh, uh, bent. But so yeah. I'm guessing that Chesley didn't. They had the he the, he had the rights, but he wasn't use, utilizing the entire schedule of games. Is that right? And that's how you got so how you it was only away. forty games out of 120 that were were out there. And ha- and so how did you shake them free, so to speak? Uh, well, the only thing we could do because the con- when the conference schedule started, Chesley had exclusivity, but there were all kinds of preseason games, meaning um, you know it might be North Carolina playing Kentucky or somebody like that. Uh, some really great games that weren't being televised, uh, and then during the season there were a few games that were kind of major that um, that were were not being televised. I know the biggest one we did was we had North Carolina playing at Maryland when Maryland was just uh, a powerhouse team. And um, uh, um, and and so we we did that game. And I think in, in North Carolina, it had a, a 38 ratings, which was the Super Bowl would do like 35 ratings. Um, and in February, we had the ratings on it. It was it was just a big, big game that was missed because stations could only take so many games in prime time before they ran into problems with ABC, CBS, or NBC. Um, and But we had different stations that were out carrying the games, and they loved the games um, because of the ratings were going to be so sky high. Uh, but we, we finished that game, and we had, we had $16.20 left to our name and could not afford to spend the night in Maryland drove back to Charlotte in our little car um, because that's all the money we had. We'd paid the crew and had not paid the rights fee yet because the rights fees weren't due until June. And we had enough time to collect that money between, uh, I guess that was in middle February. But there, but there's um, there was a lot of games that were left off that, that nobody got the chance to see. And so people were very happy when they got a, a shot at seeing what ACC basketball was like. But there was one game Rick, we did where a uh, big game, they wouldn't let us plug the truck in. Where was that? Was that a Duke game? And a Duke game at Vanderbilt. Yeah. Yeah. That the, finally the conference, um, they, the, the Duke athletic director was um, tasked with calling Vanderbilt and saying, if if you let Raycom televise the Duke game at Vanderbilt, uh, we'll not play you again anytime. And this was the day time. of the game. Yeah, the day of the game. We had the truck there. there. Truck. The truck was there. The stations were lined up. And uh, we had to cancel out to all of our stations. So it, the, the harm it did to our reputation to tell the stations we had a game, but then they canceled it on us, was really pretty, pretty bad. And our ad advertisers. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that that began the restraint of trade. So okay, so was that did that did, it, did that have Chesley's fingerprints all over at that event that situation? Oh yeah. Yeah. If you were yeah. to guess, I think Absolutely. you would say yes. So, so yeah. all right. So, so what else was going on behind the scenes then? Because it, it's clear that there's some, you know, some, uh, shall we say, untoward uh, 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 machinations going on behind the scenes to maybe prevent you from succeeding or, or nibbling away at some of his business. Well, I mean, he was doing everything he could, and and the conference commissioner to protect Chesley was doing everything he could to. Um, dissuade any teams from participating in a uh, in a game for Raycom. So we we which by the way I'm sorry seems counterintuitive because why wouldn't you want the extra exposure and the added money and advertisers and 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 possibilities of growing the league and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, it sure does. <laughs> it sure does. Well, it just didn't make any sense, and uh, we ended up having to go to go to file a lawsuit against. Um, the league for restraint of trade, and um, and and the conference looked at it and said, "Well, there, there should be even more money in here for us, and um, let's open it up for bidding because we hadn't had a bid on anything. These are state universities, so and they had not had a bid for their television rights in twenty six years, and so they they opened it up, and Chesley retired as a result." That's that's and Rick and I. Yeah. Rick and I rode around for a year, the following year, saying we're sorry to all the conferences, because <laughs> because they 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 said they were a little mad at us. Yeah, they said you'll never get the rights to the ACC ever. So every school. Anybody sues us away. <laughs> well, okay, so so quickly give us give our audience a sense of sort of the you sort of hinted at it before, but this is a world where. Late 1970s, early 1980s, cable was literally in its infancy, at least as an original program originator, aside from carrying broadcast stations, you know, to those who couldn't receive over the air signals. Um, but it's also um you mentioned it, right? It there, there's a there's a limited number of TV stations in markets in the United yeah. States, right? You had a handful of UA a VHF, which were at the time the superior signal. Uh UHF was a, a spotty. Uh, presence and or uh, uh, signal quality and that kind of stuff. And you're mentioning that most of those VHFs, uh, maybe some of the UHFs, were affiliated with networks that essentially would uh, hugely limit their ability to have any kind of, shall we call it, local or syndicated programming outside, you know, that wasn't sort of coming through those pipes. So it sounds to me like, and and I think any any person of a certain age remembers some, watching some of these games stuff. I grew up in the New York area and there were these other, you know, NBC certainly was was showing some games, ABC to a, to, to a more limited extent. But then there were these things, these entities that you started to hear and see sometimes simultaneously with these network presentations. TVS, uh, it was certainly one of those. And this thing called Raycom was certainly one of those too. And if I'm not mistaken, also Jefferson Pilot was in this mix. So can you yeah. describe... This seems a little confusing to the outsider, and I'm sure it was just nuts yeah. for you as well. Well, well, Jefferson Pilot became our partner uh, when when we we first uh, when they first opened up the the league to to have a a um, uh, a bidding. We bid like three million dollars a year. Somebody else bid bid three million dollars, and the league had said, "You'll never get it." 
So they awarded it to a different company. And we spent the next year working on that and trying to figure out how do we improve the bid and how do we improve our credibility uh, with the league and get around all of these problems. Well, and as Dee said, I spent I spent a year going around apologizing to all. I worked with you, Rick. Don't leave me out of that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. You were there with me going around apologizing, but we put 58,000 miles on our car that year, just going school to school to school to school, uh, explaining why we were still uh, working for them and trying to, to get them even more money. And, um, and we needed the credibility. So we called Jefferson Pilot and said, we think we understand what we need to do and how to do this. And this is how much money we can make. Why don't you partner with us? You do the production. We'll do everything else. We'll sell the advertising. We'll get the distribution lined up and we'll deal with the conferences. And, uh, but you've got to be our money partner back, backing us up. And they agreed. So we went in and um, <laughs> we did a presentation um, in in um, a hotel uh, big conference room with big windows looking out over a parking lot. And what did they see, D, out of the parking lot? Well, I asked uh, Jefferson Pilot to bring their huge remote truck and then park it at the front door of the hotel where the 16 or 19 different companies, the bidders would come through the door and the ACC members. And on the we put a big banner that said, ACC on the road with Raycom Jefferson Pilot. That was pretty impressive for anybody in there going in to bid against us. And we and we came in and we said our bid is not for one year, but for three years, $18 million. And these are people who had gotten two years earlier, $40,000. <laughs> and the result worked out. The, the Clemson athletic director was the first to come out of the, the meeting room and they'd called us to the to stand outside the meeting room. And he said, um, I'll never forget it. He said, you know, Rick and D, from now on, you're, you can't just bleed Carolina blue, referring to my heritage of North Carolina and D's heritage of, of being a North Carolina follower, UNC. Uh, you have to bleed, bleed eight different colors, which included Clemson orange, of course. <laughs> but it was it was um, quite a, quite an experience so so unlike those other na names that i sort of threw out there I, you're essentially maybe unwittingly uh almost creating essentially the blueprint for the modern day sports syndication company right this is really what you're essentially evolving into is becoming a at least at, the, at, the, at that time a regional sports syndicator using basketball as your north star is that right yeah well, yeah, I mean, we, we didn't think of ourselves as syndicators. Syndicators had a, a, had a very negative connotation. Um, yeah, we and the differentiation is what I'm trying to get at with that question. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Rick, tell them what you did. We looked uh, at ourselves. Probably not as, a syndicator. We looked at ourselves as a network. Uh, you see, the networks um, operated where they they had the programming. They sold all of the advertising within the programming. And they gave local stations a 60-second or 90-second break at the end of the program to run their local ads. And they paid the local stations a fee for that opportunity. Now, I had worked in local television stations for 10 years, so I knew pretty much what local stations were getting in each market. 
per hour. And I knew that as an example in Washington, D.C., they were getting $900 an hour for carrying ABC. So when we got the ACC, I figured, okay, we'll talk with the ABC affiliate in um, Washington. They're getting $900 an hour. So we'll run the games that have a much higher rating than ABC programming would have on the local ABC affiliate, big station, VHF, Channel 5. And um, we'll pay you $1,800. Now, the station was selling advertising on ABC for $2,000 a unit. But for the 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 mid the in breaks in ACC, they were getting $10,000 a unit because the ratings were that that much better. So for $1,800, we got 10,000 times 40 units in each game. We got $400,000 worth of advertising that we could run. That was just Washington, D.C. And when you look at every market from Washington to Atlanta, we had network affiliates that we paid uh, to become our network affiliates. Um, and so it it really paid off in a big way. So so tempting then to preempt then, right? And financially advantageous right. to do that. But I yeah. got to think that you were causing consternation with the various yeah. networks yeah, that yeah. you were in, infringing on, shall we say, in the oh, Southeast. That's, that's right. But, but the local stations have in their FCC applications the, the necessity to run programming of local significance and interest and college basketball obviously fulfilled that that decree by the fcc so that it was just like running news programming for local stations now um, but we realized you could push the networks only so far so we wouldn't program every tuesday night we would program wednesday nights some nights thursday nights some nights uh seldom would be saturday nights so we we would rotate around um, which networks we would hit and which networks we would kind of stay away from uh, in order to keep the stations happy and in order to keep the networks happy. So it, there was a, a nice symbiotic relationship. That all, it worked out in the long run and it worked out magnificently for 20 years, basically. All right, what's this? OldSchoolShirts.com. Fantastic. You've heard me talk on and on and on about the great folks and the great wares at OldSchoolShirts.com. Like the name implies, it's old school and it's shirts, and they put them together, see, into what they call OldSchoolShirts.com. Uh, it's like the name implies, but of course, we love them primarily uh, for their sports wear. You name the league of the past you name the team of the past the chances are huge that they're going to have more than one shirt and different color schemes for things that you may remember from the united football league or the major indoor soccer league or various flavors of the original xfl's plural or the federal league perhaps or maybe world team tennis or maybe it was the north american soccer league and on and on and on but, hey, it's not just sports. It's also great cultural touchstones and memories from the past. 
How about the officially licensed Evil Knievel connection? Connection? How about collection? Yeah, that's what he's trying to say. Uh, Various colleges. How about dead malls of the past? Ice cream parlors, maybe even radio stations that you might remember. Hey, even there's a latest edition of the old, now old, Aloha Stadium commemorative shirt. All that kind of stuff and more. You will find at least a handful of shirts that you will just transport you back into your past and you will amaze and impress your friends at the same time. It's oldschoolshirts.com. And we got a promo code for you, of course. Let's save you some dough while you go there. And it's uh, promo code is good seats. Good seats. That's the promo code at oldschoolshirts.com. Promo code good seats for 10% off all of your purchases. Hey, P.F. Wilson and your friends at oldschoolshirts.com, thank you for your sponsorship of the show. And now, back to our conversation. So let me ask you this thing. So uh, two things here. Number one, it seems like you've got sort of a a growing chokehold, if you will, on the ACC basketball thing yeah. it seems like that's what led or or made uh, obvious sense to partner with as needed with an nbc for some games or you know some co-productions uh, obviously the jefferson pilot re- relationship the espn conversation and beyond uh as well and i also got to think too uh that it became an easier sell as that sort of became the case right it almost feels like you were partnering your way to scale and success beyond just sort of saying our way or the highway. Yeah, I think I think we were. Um, you know, the the greatest kind of partnerships are when everybody wins, and when when people are unified in their approach and taking care of each other, then some great things can happen. Well, our our goal was um, certainly for the ACC as our founding partner, but then uh, we realized in order to get more national advertising. We needed to add other areas of the country. And we knew that regionalization was not something that was being done by the national networks. Uh, uh, and, and that was what we wanted to propose to do. So we would we would go to Louisville, Kentucky, and we wanted University of Louisville games and Kentucky games to, to be only there. Uh, we went to the Southwest Conference. We ended up getting the Southwest Conference early on. And we knew there we weren't going to play North Carolina playing Clemson. We'd play Texas playing Texas A&M or Texas A&M playing TCU. We'd play those local games. But because we had the muscle of selling all the advertising and we would just pay the local stations for improved ratings on what they were doing, we, we would sell all the advertising there. And then pretty soon we realized that we, if we if Ford was a client, we could do the Dealers Association in Texas, Dealers Association in North Carolina and Georgia and, and D.C. Maybe we needed to add something else. And we started looking at the big eight. Um, and fortunately, one of our competitors was actually Anheuser-Busch and a company that was the biggest rep national rep firm for television stations in the country, Cats. And they had problems figuring it out. They just did syndication where you just you gave the local stations half your inventory and you sold the rest of your inventory. Well, that created the biggest problem you could ever imagine because you the local stations were selling against the 
the the syndication company and the local stations would always win the bid for the advertisers so we came in and we said no we're networking and uh, local stations got money they got higher ratings and we got all of the inventory so that worked in this in the in the big eight then we said like let's let's look at other areas of the country we, we eventually added the big 10 we added the pac 10 uh, so we could actually go coast to coast we ended up selling for the big east so that we could create a package for a Ford or some other automotive or a bank that, that had natural national implications, but it was on a local region by region basis. So the, the audiences were terrific. You know, I, I looked very recently at our ratings for just the ACC when we were televising it, where we would deliver a million and a half to two million homes every game, Saturday afternoon. Uh, Tuesday night, it was always a couple of million homes uh, just for the ACC region. Now, the NBA today does about a 1.8 million viewers per game in their primetime package on cable. So just one little area, 10% of the U.S. was delivering the same numbers that the national networks were delivering for an NBA, which is a great product. But that shows the power of that regionalism and how important it is if you can take the regionalism and put it on a national basis, region by region by region, then you've really created a phenomenal advertising vehicle. And that's that's what we worked at and tried to build toward. And it worked. D, it certainly... when, when did you when it when, D when did you realize it was an easier sell that uh, with this? Because I think what he's what Rick is describing right is is you have essentially a quasi national footprint. You can sell it regionally. You can sell it locally. You have that flexibility, I guess, which is something that you didn't have just with ACC and and the, and that uh, East Coast region, right? That's right. It's called a soapbox. I did a soapbox, and I yeah, said, she did. <laughs> An actual soapbox, or okay, yeah, it was actual, close to it. We had a restaurant one night. Uh, Rick and uh, me and Ken Haynes, our executive VP, were at dinner, and I said, you know. We got to be national. If we're not national, I'm. I wind up in a local uh, buyer's office, and I'm in a. That's too much. I'm not going to do that. I need to be in the national buyer's office. So, let's go get the Pac-10. We'll lose money on it, but not if you look at the entire country, the big picture. Now, I can say to Anheuser-Busch, General Motors, or any of these clients, we're going to give you local games. On a national basis, we're going to protect your exclusivity. You're not going to be up against your competitor. And you're going to get the highest ratings you can ever imagine. So, of course, we'd had a little wine or whatever. So I went a little longer than I needed to on my really? soapbox because they, they were buying in fairly quickly. We went and we got the Pac-10. And then that made us become a truly a national independent network. And again, what Rick was talking about, buying the time from the stations, that was brilliant, totally brilliant. And also scary because it increased our outlay of money. Oh, my gosh. I mean, the reason a syndicator does that in the first place, bartering, is to save money, right? And take the risk off of themselves. Now, we have all the risk. So if we don't, we don't do it right, 
we're going to go down. But we did it right, and it was a brilliant move on Rick's part. The advertisers loved it, and and off we went. And we did lose money on one or two conferences, but not on the whole. But but I suspect it also required you to be as diligent and as accurate as possible in understanding what the latest uh, going rate, shall we say, yeah, was yeah, that, yeah. for network versus, yeah, to, to do the preamp thing, right? Yeah, I remember being in somebody's office and uh, gave them a presentation he whips around and he looks on his credenza, pulls a book out, opens it up and goes, oh, yeah, I think you're a little less than we paid last year. And I'm there going like, do you have any whiteout? <laughs> do you remember whiteout? That's where you could take a little a brush and make a new number by taking the old number and write a new one in. But yeah, that's <laughs> it was quite interesting how we could get them to finally start realizing, wait a minute. This is a really good deal, and you're right. We had to be very accurate. So let let me so let me give, give me a sense then of of this growth pattern that you're doing because uh, to to get all of these conferences uh, in such a short uh, period of time um, uh, is number one pretty pretty darn amazing. Number two, you knew though that that probably couldn't last, especially uh, as other people were recognizing what was going on and. This ESPN thing, which on the cable side, right, was just voraciously looking for sports programming of any kind as well. So uh, I guess the question in there is, um, what was going on in the realm of college basketball? I, I got to think all these, all this exposure and all these new games into the pipeline was uh, exciting to everybody uh, from players to coaches to schools. Um, but also raising a level of competition, maybe that you hadn't that yeah. that your early lead wasn't necessarily going to last. Right, that's true. So, Rick, who was it bid against us on the Big Ten? Um, ESPN did. Was it ESPN? So yeah. they bid uh, six million more than they knew we were going to bid. Uh, than they knew that we were going to bid that less right and they bid it and they got it so we said fine we went to them and said look how about we represent you in sales you be the national we'll do the other just like we always have right and to me that would have brought or to us that would have brought the same money to our bottom line without the risk of, of production distribution rights we would just become the sports marketing, if you will, cats of the world, right? And um, that was what I thought the company, the way the company should go. And that way you stayed in the game and you lowered your overhead and you got the same bottom line. Yeah. And we also, also tried a few other things that um, some of the our biggest failures were one, one, we tried to start a regional sports network, knowing that the region was really important and were a lot of sports fans in the Atlantic Coast area. So we talked with the Baltimore Orioles and the Bullets uh, with the idea of joining forces. And then we'd crop in some ACC basketball games and some ACC football and then set up a regional sports network. And for some reason... Uh, we all pulled back and and that didn't work. That was in probably 83. 
or 84. Was that the ACC ticket thing? No, no. It was a different thing. That was different. Okay. Interesting. But but so so ACC ticket was a cable thing, right? And the other one you were describing is more of a regional sports network over the air? That was a regional sports network on a cable basis, but it it was a a, a advertiser-supported network, similar to what exists today. Um, but or or used to exist since they've all overpaid. Um, but but we did try pay per view. We set up um, I think maybe a dozen or fifteen games that weren't being televised in the region because television stations by that point in time were getting more and more pressure from ABC, CBS, and NBC to to see some games that they couldn't get on. And ESPN was just ESPN. It wasn't ESPN two, three, four, five, and six or whatever. It was just ESPN. They couldn't handle it. So there were a bunch of games that could have been televised uh, that we had passed uh, on for the commercial broadcast market. And we, we worked with ESPN and we set up a thing called prime ticket that, that for 1995, you could get this package of games. And we figured we'd get maybe a million homes to subscribe uh, who were who were totally into the college basketball. And uh, ESPN went along with it, and we, we set it up. We s- s- lined up the games. Everything was set up through cable to distribute. And um, we got hit with 53 temporary restraining orders just in North Carolina uh, to say we – you can't show these games unless we get it for free. And, and because um, and the public wanted the game, they had felt like they owned the games, not we own the games. And we ended up dropping, dropping it and paying the conference, I think $800,000 for the right to, to no do them. Because that's what we were going to guarantee them as their minimum for the pay-per-view product. Uh, but it was, you know, if you did that today, uh, and there were not many games on, it would be a tremendous success. But we were just way ahead of our time in that. And uh, the market just wasn't ready for it. But the, the we even had the the state attorney general in North Carolina call me and said, uh, I know you're legally absolutely correct. This is absolutely what you can do. But I'm, I'm up for re-election. And uh, I've got to sign with the temporary restraining orders people in order to uh, to get elected. So, um, you know, when it's all over, we'll still be friends. So. And he said, I'll lose, you'll win. Yeah, yeah. But it'll be too late. Yeah. Well, what you're describing, though, is actually you're, you're just not also a sports television company. You're also actually at the bleeding edge of, of the uh, inelegant evolution of broadcast TV versus cable television. And we're, this is even in a time even before retrans and 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 yeah. and that kind of stuff. So, and must carry sort of come in, came into play as cable really came into its own. So, I mean, to, to say that you were pioneers is kind of an understatement. Let me ask you this question, though. Where is ESPN in all of this? Because I, I'm hearing, you know, both partner and competitor in this. It, it, do I have that right? And that can't necessarily be an easy relationship to manage if that is correct. Well, for, for a long time, we were very close partners. Um, early on, we provided the games to them outside our region. Um, as it as we grew, there was a certain number of games. And once we got all of the rights from these leagues, the conferences, 
we knew that we couldn't televise everything. And so we had we had uh, major packages with ESPN to carry the games we couldn't cut we couldn't carry over our broadcast affiliates. Which I'm uh, sorry, they would black out in those lo- local markets where you would be syndicating on the stations, correct? Well, well uh, no, they just wouldn't wouldn't carry those games anywhere. Uh, every once in a while, they would they would carry outside the area. Got it. Uh, for the most part, we just created a schedule for ESPN. So there was a broadcast schedule, and then we created a ESPN schedule uh, as well that was totally separate. Um, and we did that for, I don't know, 10, 10 or 15 years before they started saying they've got to do it all, all on their own. And it was for significant, significant dollars. Uh, so they were a very valuable partner to us, and and we were very important partners for them. I, I remember we went we went to their tenth anniversary uh, big party they had at Hershey's Hershey Park, and had Huey Lewis in the news uh, as their as their as their um, entertainment that night. We sat on the second row with with Steve Bornstein and and Roger Werner and all the gang there because we were there there actually true partners. Uh, and um, it, it went that way for a long time. But, you know, eventually partners, it, it, the partnership arrangements change and your biggest biggest partner or your biggest customer will become your eventual competitor at some point in time. It's just the way business works. Where, where's football in all this? Well, football for the longest time was controlled by the NCAA. And... Um, and they would they would not allow anything. Then the CFA came along and broke off some some of the rights, and uh, then then it eventually opened up. But it it took a long time, probably um, eight or nine years before it opened up. And then it was, you know, it was they were used to getting a um, million dollars a game minimum fees because there were so few games, but but most teams didn't have that many games televised, if any, because um, it was just on ABC primarily. And then eventually CBS got into it and NBC did, did a deal with Notre Dame when the, the CFA was founded. And it was uh, a lot of the schools participating in the CFA college football association was the name of it. And then they made a deal with um, ABC for exclusivity and then Notre Dame had told everybody they were going along with it. And then Notre Dame announced that they had a, an exclusive deal with NBC and would be out of the CFA. So there was a lot, a lot of tussling in between with all of the leagues on who owned what rights and how you how you did it. Because you know, if if Notre Dame is playing at at Kentucky or someplace, uh, who owns the rights? Did Notre Dame own all those rights? Or did Kentucky own the rights because it's their home game, and uh, so uh, it, it was it was a battle over football because football has big audience um, for at that point in time it had a big big audience, but it had a bigger audience in the stadium. Each stadium represented a million and a half or two million dollars worth of income to the, to a school, and they wanted to protect that and get as much out of each individual game as they possibly could. But but that didn't stop you guys from from trying to nibble around some of that. Like uh, you have a great story in the, in the book about uh the Blockbuster Bowl uh yeah. 
and the, the birth of that. Uh, do you want to give us a, a minute or two on sort of like how that kind of comes about, especially given that background and that challenge relative to the ba- to the basketball thing where your prowess largely was? Well, we we were looking at at um, where where could we have events or programs that we owned. So we had basketball basketball tournaments that we actually owned. And we said, how could we get into the bowl game situation? And um, and so we applied to the NCAA, and we, we had um, brought on Richard Giannini, who had been the, uh, the assistant athletic director of Florida and a great reputation and was on the NCAA basketball committee. Um, and and he, he and his cohorts – that, that he brought with him just just worked, 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 worked to try to get the ability to have a bowl game. And it, in it, you had to uh, guarantee like a million dollars to each, a uh, million dollars that would go be split to the teams. And you had to have some TV. And, um, and, and uh, I think 75% of all the revenue that was generated from ticket sales had to go to the schools and 75% of all the broadcast money had to go to the, the schools and be split up. So we were in a unique position where we could say the television money was a hundred dollars. It wasn't a hundred thousand or a million dollars. Um, but we would, we would guarantee, um, X amount of dollars to each school. And, um, and it ended up that we got Florida state playing, um, Penn State for our first Blockbuster Bowl. And we brought in Wayne Heisinger uh, and Blockbuster Video as the sponsor for a, a big a big dollar. And um, it ended up being a, a great success because we had we sold more tickets than the Super Bowl had sold in Joe Robbie Stadium uh, a few months earlier. Uh, and, and just a wild, wild experience in doing it. Well, also, also uh, the background on that too is that obviously that the uh, the stadium was uh, brand new or a year or two years old, right? It was, it was he was looking, or the the entity there was looking to 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 add some marquee events to uh, beyond just the Miami Dolphins uh, home games, right? Yeah, they they were. Joe Robbie had had the stadium was fairly new, and um, Joe Robbie had sold half of his, uh, had a big, big mortgage and they, they sold half of the stadium ownership to Wayne Heisinger, who also owned all of Blockbuster. Um, so when we went after Blockbuster, um, we, we got half the stadium as well from, from a stamp, a business standpoint, there's a, a funny story that I give you the, uh, it, it is, uh, we're about to kick off. So I'm on the field with with Bobby Bowden and and um, Penn State's coach and and um, and and the, the referees and the, the the mascot for Florida State is um, a horse and there's a there's a, a warrior on the horse and he comes out and he throws the lance down at, at, at midfield and they have all kinds of festivities. And, um, and so the NCAA referee says, I'm sorry, coach Bowden, but you can't have a horse during on the field or any animal on the field during an NCAA bowl game. That's the rules. 
And Bobby Bowden said, well, I, I tell you what, for every game since 1948, that horse has been on a stadium. And uh, for each game that Florida State plays in, and uh, and and that's going to happen. And um, and Papa Joe's there. He's going at Penn State. He's going like, no, I don't care. That's fine with me. That's fine with me. And the referee's getting madder and madder. Saying, no, he's got to be off the state. He's got to be out of here. And I'm there with with Wayne Heisinger, who is who is just a dynamic figure, but kind of short. <laughs> And, and he goes over. He says, "Mr. Referee, Mr. Referee, excuse me, but if if uh, if if the horse runs around in my end of the stadium that I own, would that be okay?" And the referee said, "Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. Let's let's kick it off. Let's kick it off." So so we escaped and and got the game started. Uh, and the the seventy eight thousand fans who were just going totally crazy because we wouldn't kick it off, finally settled down and we had we had a game. So it was some experience. All right, so I got a couple of, of, of just roundup questions because we could go on. I could go on forever with you guys, and 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 maybe someday we'll do we'll do a part two or a part three because yeah. this is I mean this is endlessly. It's like pulling a, a, on a ball of string here, but let me. Um, but that th that also speaks to yet another sort of pioneering kind of spirit here, right? Because 1990, right? I mean, the the, the inventory of bowl games, which is now ridiculously like at 45, I think it is major bowl games now. It's just insane. Like I, I don't know how many teams don't make a bowl game at this point. Yeah, um, but, yeah. but in some respects, you're almost at the, at the at the the head of the curve there in terms of you know, creating a whole nother tier of bowl games fr from that. So that, that's a pretty prescient move on your part. Well, it, it was interesting because the Blockbuster Bowl was a real success and continued being a success because of Wayne Heising and his, his input. Now, our dream was that we wanted to create the Rose Bowl of the East as the Blockbuster Bowl, and we would get the ACC and the Big East to play each other in it, just as the Big Ten and the Pac-10 play in the Rose Bowl. And so we we... We kept getting more popular and we talked with Wayne and said, like, let's go do a presentation and we will explain to the both leagues that we want to create this major, major bowl activity. So Wayne agreed to put in $50 million at that time. And we went out and, and we pitched all the presidents of the Big East and of the ACC and the athletic directors I think it was in Philadelphia. Flew everybody flew in, and um, they were like really impressed. And here's more money than they ever thought they typically they would get. Each school might get a, a million dollars. Well, this is a guarantee that each school would get at least two and a half million, maybe four million dollars. That that kind of number, um, with a huge backer and blockbuster video. It was really hot at that point in time. And um, so we, we went away and it, it kind of dwindled and dwindled. We're trying to figure out what's going on. And we've found out that the all the major bowls, the Cotton Bowl, Rose Bowl, um, uh, the, the Orange Bowl, um, uh, the, the, the Fiesta Bowl, all got together and said, we, we have to do something. We're only getting, you know, like $4 million from... ABC, CBS, NBC, we've got to double that at least to be competitive with the Blockbuster Bowl. Let's form a consortium and the uh, and and the the bowl 
it'll be a bowl committee, but just us lead bowls will be in it. Blockbuster will not be in it. And, um, and we'll get more money from the major networks. And they did. So the major network money was maybe tripled. And um, so then, then that's where it is today. Well, I mean, the irony there—the irony there is that that ba- basketball, college basketball, is what kind of puts you guys on the map, and and here you are, essentially, <laughs> completely undoing the postseason for college football yeah. uh, by yeah. virtue of this match. Yeah, yeah, but the 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 bowl championship series was was birthed by uh, Wayne Heisinger's efforts uh, to to create a, a major bowl game at Blockbuster, uh, so. Uh, it, it interesting how it all how it all took place. All right, well, one last one last area I want to get to, and then I want to get uh, both of your comments on the current situation in sports, sort of as our sort of a, a bow tie wrap up of because I'm sure you have opinions, but but before we get there, I, I just I'm curious to know how you handled um, talent, uh, the broadcasters, how were they chosen, and 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 some of the careers that you essentially helped launch because of all this. Uh, uh, amazing growth in, in the college basketball game. We mentioned one, obviously, at the outset. Um, and also, too, uh, how did the the schools and the players and the coaches sort of react to what I would guess is some uh, a, a growing amount of, of attention and exposure uh, that they hadn't had a decade prior in, in, in hoops? Well, you know, talent-wise, it's, it's interesting when you see – uh, the people who are on the networks now, the major networks and on ESPN, um, work for us at one time or another. Um, Jim Nance, uh, we we started with him doing football in Texas when he was he was not doing that much. Uh, uh, Tarico, uh, he he did some games for us. Um, uh, you know, it just goes on and on. We we. We were fortunate that there were a lot of great talent um, out there. They, they were doing Major League Baseball games, many, you know, many games a season. So they were very talented and they understood how to broadcast uh, and how to call games. But they weren't giving that many opportunities in basketball or college football. And, um, w- you know, we ended up with with putting most of the talent that is out there today uh, did games for us at one time or another. Uh, a lot of them now are, are even even retired. Um, but it, it was um, just just a great experience because we uh, we we wanted to treat everybody with respect, um, make them feel comfortable, uh, and uh, created a family atmosphere for all of our games. I think I think at one point in time in basketball season we televised. Uh, 34 games in one day. Uh, in college football, we were probably doing six or seven games in each each day um, on Saturdays. So it was um, there's a lot of people. We'd ha- we'd have um, we had a hundred out of our staff. We had a hundred people. Um, we only had eight in production, but on a weekend we'd have up to fifteen hundred people working. Um, and it's just rewarding to see where some of them have gone. Um, you know, some of them became executive producers at the major networks. Um, some are, are still at ESPN. 
I know we have we have a, a, a good friend, Tom Hewitt, that does all of the the NBA games in Memphis and does major league baseball all around the country and a lot of football. Um uh, and we stay in touch with with uh, a lot of them regularly. Uh, but it's always always nice that, to to see how they've progressed and done things on their own. You know, we have a book out that is now uh, called Unstoppable. That um, we we uh, a, a great writer from Atlanta put together, George Herthler, and uh, George is the only person I know of who's who has gotten a an Olympic gold medal from the International Olympic Committee for writing a book that he wrote on um, the um, de Coubertin who founded the modern Olympic Games. But he wrote our book and just did a magnificent job. And we've sent it around and it's been so great for us because we started reliving memories of some of the things that we went through and got in touch with with the people that we worked with. And and 201, it was like, oh, you it was such a family relationship there. We all felt part of a great thing. And uh, we're so happy to hear from you. And um, look what we're doing now. Um, And it. it's just been a great experience. And the book relives all of the period of mainly the 80s when college basketball was on the rise. And um, it was it became much, much more important college football as well. Um, and, and these people all took part of it, uh, of that growth, uh, and, and really did something for the whole community and making people enjoy just a few moments every Saturday or Sunday that they didn't have before. No, it, it, this is a, a great read, and, and and it's really something that uh, sports fans can understand, but then also people in the media realm can also understand too. Because, and frankly, the the, the entwined uh, growth of those, especially in that decade where you know cable was coming into its own and broadcast television. Uh, more stations, more more networks, and all that kind of stuff, and it's 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 just amazing that you were able to sort of ride that tail from. If you think about it, right, I'm sure you 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 have to pinch yourselves sometimes and and go, geez, you know what you were dealing with in the in the mid to late 1970s, the vision thing that you had, and the and the um, the uh, belief in in what was possible. And then literally, you know, sort of seeing that uh, exponentially grow and coming out the other end. Uh, with probably very minor bruises and, and uh, lacerations in the '90s, and and being able to sell the sell the firm and stuff, but I mean, just it's an amazing transformation, not only of of college sports and sports generally and basketball and that kind of stuff, but also just television and media. And obviously, we're in the midst of yet another generational change too. I, I guess I want to sort of leave this with uh, a, 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 your uh, individual. And collective thoughts about where, um, where you think we are right now in, uh, in in televised sports, professional sports, college sports. Um, I don't know how much you particularly care now, given <laughs> that you've kind of been able to sort of uh, uh, enjoy a life a little bit beyond uh, having to work the day to day stuff. But I, I gotta think when you turn on the TV or you you happen to be at a at a restaurant or you you bump into some. Some some folks from various colleges today and stuff. Um, I, I got to think you have some opinions about sort of where we are now and and 
maybe it's a little too big and we've gone too far, or maybe it's just at a precipice of a, what do you think of today's big money college athletics and sports and media and that kind of stuff? Good, bad, indifferent. D, do you want to come in? I'm glad I'm not having to market it. <laughs> really? What do you, what do you mean by that? Cause I would imagine advertisers and all that kind of stuff would be a relatively easier sell or it's is it too complicated now? It's a lot of money. And it, it's a huge uh, revenue uh, bucket to fill up versus, I don't even, I can't even figure out where all the money comes from. And when you're talking about the billions that they're, they're uh, owe for these rights now, Rick is more into the current day um, marketing and all of the rights fees and the new conferences than I am. Well, I just I think there are going to be all kinds of new partnerships um, uh, in look, looking at um, the latest football ratings and who's going to play in the 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 bowl championships. Um, and it, it looks almost looks to me like there may be a uh, a SEC champion and a Big Ten champion and the two of them will play off for the national championship maybe leaving out some of the other other leagues that are very, very valuable to us and to everybody in their respective regions, but may not have the publicity or the clout that those two leagues have. Uh, so it's going to be interesting uh, that way. I think it, it, is, it, is, it is becoming much more a subscriber-based uh, revenue uh, model, uh, than an advertiser-based revenue model. It is almost like we're selling seats again, the way it used to be before television got involved. I know I know when when we got involved, all of the athletic directors are going like, oh, we need the exposure. We need the exposure, but we can't we can't uh, do do have too many games on because then we wouldn't sell our fill our seats. They'd want to stay home and watch TV. And now it's and then it changed and said like we got to have TV. We don't care if they if they come or not. We we've got this TV money. It is so big. Well, they're going to have the subscriber money. Um, that's true. So they they may not care that much about people in the seats. But if they're the seats aren't filled, then the subscribers will think, well, this is not that important. So we better maybe don't want to spend as much. So there's a conundrum there that that all of the teams and leagues have to look at. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think is is really interesting is in in most of these college leagues, uh, they have they have built a great reputation and a brand. And in the ACC in particular, you look and see, well, the Saturday afternoon games were a must. It was a a a an experience of community almost a religious kind of thing. As Mike Krzyzewski said in, in, and quoted in our book, that that we became the the evangelist for a religion called ACC basketball. And, and there was some real truth in that, um, that it was like a religion. But as, as it becomes so easy to find and so easy to see, and the product is so diluted, the league's have to make sure that their brand stays their brand because it is important to to the merchandise sales 
and to the fundraising for the universities that the sports activities uh, have a real exclusivity and a degree of importance. Now, I, I read the other day that that um, because of the NILs that are out there, name, image, and likeness uh, with players in colleges, that uh, what used to be donations going from big boosters to the athletic departments are being funneled away to endorsements to the quarterback or to the halfback or something like that. And those are no longer tax deductible because it is that's that's for pay. Um, so uh, donations may fall as a result of that. Um, I think yeah, the, the cynics may say that uh, that's what got SMU the, the, the death penalty in the 1980s. And now all of a sudden it's involved right. and it's legal now. Right. So yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that that some universities pay their um, their offensive linemen, second string linemen, sixty thousand dollars a year just to show up. That's just in, in a major program. I heard that uh, as the minimum. Uh, so and and the athletes deserve money because for years they've been taken advantage of. So there's a real conundrum there of how to how to deal with it that nobody's quite figured out yet. But what what is really wild is that someone who has real experience in the business said to me, look out one of these days, one of the major universities will get a request from a PE firm to buy their football team. And when you look at it, if, if you looked at what, um, let's, let's say it's Alabama, what does Alabama generate their football program generate? Probably $100 million, $150 million a year for the school. Well, let's suppose a PE company comes in and say, we will pay you $2 billion up front and we will own the rights to the football team. We'll collect all the advertising. We'll sell the seats. We'll pay the players and it'll be run like a business. Um, now, when when the Washington Redskins um, warrant a $6 billion price tag, I, I would venture to say if the University of Alabama, if all they got was two billion, maybe they're short shorted out of what they could make off of off of their own football team. But I think as college presidents look at this, they will and if if the teams are unionized, the players are unionized so that they can make more money, uh, which surely will happen, maybe the presidents will say, you know, I don't need to handle these unions of football players. I'm here to educate people and I'm just going to focus on that. Yeah, I'll sell this off. I'll take $2 billion, put that into my new medical facility and do research there. You know, those questions are going to be asked. And I think that's that's the futuristic way that it could go. I'm not sure I'm in favor of that, uh, but I, I don't have all the answers on it. Um, yeah, it's my understanding that Florida State is uh, along is kind of along uh, in the conversations for such a such a scenario. Um, I, with all due respect, and I think I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly. The minute that happens, um, I, you know, I, it just the whole thing to me is just uh, becomes I don't know if it's farcical, but it but it becomes a whole sort of different breed of activity based from yeah. from whence it whence it came. I I also think though. And I guess that'll be sort of the last question and opinion of yours I'd love to hear. Um, 
it's interesting because the two of you were at the forefront on many different levels of uh, bringing college sports in sort of into the modern television era and and growing up with with all of that and the advent of of cable and, and and the explosion of television and all that kind of stuff and and clearly the bulk of these revenues you know in a world where ESPN events you know runs 20 bowl games just simply to create television programming where the 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 Mac conference or the you know the the south the 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 sunbelt conference you know will will have games on Tuesday nights and Wednesday nights in front of like 700 people uh just to have a game on television right selling yeah. their soul in the process yeah. i the question there though i think is does streaming change or recalibrate stuff because there's no question that television revenues as currently constructed have pumped in a ton of money into the game I'm not sure streaming is going to be the same kind of thing. And and I think maybe the expectations may be different given what the economics of streaming ultimately look like. I don't know. Yeah, if you have- I, I think that um, you look at Bally Sports and what they went through with Sinclair, Sinclair as well, broadcasting company. I mean, they they overestimated how many people would be cable subscribers who would pay for their packages uh, across a wide swath of the country. And um, I don't know whether people revolted or people just didn't care as much anymore. And um, it, so it changed. It changed. I think, I think the leagues are going to wake up and go like, you know, we have to be a servant to our audience and give them what they like and um, give it to them. And we'll get advertisers to help bring it along but we can't just keep cleaning out the pockets of of the people who were loyal to us all along and who've grown up with us. We need we need to be their friends and help them help them win. Uh, and that that's I see that as a change that's coming. Well, from your mouth to God's ears, we'll we'll see. Um, I you know I, yeah. I I try not to be an old man yelling at the clouds uh, and, and try to be you know realistic and pragmatic about stuff, but. I don't know. It, I, there, there is a whiff of what I think is maybe going to be more of a uh, conversational trend in the next year or two, and I, I think that's peak sports. I wonder if we're maybe near the sort of the peak or of this potential particular cycle, um, because I, I just you know with the billions of dollars of valuation, you know, a private equity thing potentially coming into college, the NIL gambling. We even talk about that gaming. You know, what oh, could go wrong yeah. there? I mean, I, I just, you know, I, I just don't know if the soul of sports sort of survive, survives that. And if fandom is, you know, can continue to rise without sort of any kind of economic reckoning, because, you know, the average fan can't can't afford much to go to an average game anymore. It's just I don't know. It just doesn't feel sustainable at this level for too much longer. Look what happened to NASCAR. NASCAR was incredible as a sport. And it and had a big audience on TV, had a big audience in the stands, and their price points went up, 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 and the fans left them. Um, that it is, it is, it is still fairly popular, but it's not not gospel popular the way it was for a number of years. And um, I think that could happen with a lot of things. I think the one thing we've not even mentioned was the international applications. And when you look at the the NFL is playing in London, they're playing in Mexico City, um, they're going international. The NBA is way international. So 
I mean, it's it's hard to believe that the NBA would pay $63 million to a basketball player for one season. It's just hard to believe that, but, but there is evidently there's that kind of money. That's a value to, to that player. And a lot of other players are getting $50 million a year. I, I, I joked with somebody talking about football and a quarterback making 40, 45 or $50 million a year. Does the quarterback go to the left guard or the left tackle and say, look, if nobody touches me during this game, I'm going to pay you $600,000 just to keep them off my back. So, I, you know, it could go crazy. Our thanks to Rick and Dee. Great conversation. Equally great book. It's called Unstoppable. A story of love, faith, and the power couple who ignited the college sports broadcasting boom. Uh, It is published by New Ray, and uh, it is authored by a wonderful writer named George Herthler, H-I-R-T-H-L-E-R. Search it up and find it wherever you find good books, or you can find it on uh, New Ray Media. That's N-U-R-A-Y-M-E-D-I-A, newraymedia.com. Or, of course, you can go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Search up this episode with Rick and D. Ray, uh, which is numbered 328. And uh, you will find a convenient link or two to Amazon, where you will get uh, the quickest, probably, delivery uh, that you can get for this book. And we'll get a couple of shekels of referral love when you do that. We appreciate that very much. Or wherever you find good books. Go to your local uh, uh, bookseller uh, wherever you, you know, wherever you want to go, just, 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 just get it. Um, because it's, uh, it, if you're a fan of college basketball, if you're a fan of college sports, if you're a fan of televised sports, uh, you're going to find, uh, entrees of intrigue, uh, in this story. Uh, and, uh, it, it's a, it's a fun read, some great photos in there. Um, but it's, uh, it's really, it's a lesson, uh, on sort of how to entrepreneurially not only build a business, but, uh, frankly, the early days, I would call it early days. The 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 uh, interesting transition, shall we say, of television uh, and college sports. And uh, Rick and Deeb were in the midst of it, and arguably uh, charted a whole bunch of channels, if you will, uh, that uh, exist or were foundational for uh, the crazy large business of televised sports that we have today. And um, this is this is why we do this. We love these great stories. Uh, and we're pleased uh, uh, to deliver them to you uh, as long as we can keep the lights on. So uh, buy all the, as many books as you can, and we'll try to figure out some Patreon and some other kinds of stuff for next year uh, as the electricity uh, rates uh, continue to increase. Let's put it that way. Uh, what else? Let's see. You can follow us on social media. Besides going to goodseatsstillavailable.com, you're going to find all of our episodes. Uh, we post them there. Obviously, you want to uh, rate and review on your favorite podcast player or feeder. Of course, why aren't you subscribing if you aren't already? But in case you aren't or you want to kind of uh, tell your friends about what the show is about and want to give them a chance to sample it, that's where the, the website sort of really comes in handy. Plus, the website also has all those links, like I said, for all those other episodes. We've got all the books and media uh, that uh, our, uh, our guests may have been promoting at the time. Uh, and they're all there for you to enjoy, as well as some great photography, usually in support of each show. On social media, you'll find us in various places. 
Uh, we're going to rethink what 2024 looks like social media wise. But for this moment, you will find us on Twitter slash X, whatever we're calling it this week, at Good Seats Still. And uh, these various other places, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. That's uh, Facebook. Uh, that is uh, Instagram. And um, where else? Um, somewhere else. I can't even remember. Threads, etc. cetera. Uh, let's see. What else? Uh, you can send us email. By all means, please do so. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Don't forget to spell that correctly. It's all one word, goodseatsstillavailable.com. And um, holidays are uh, amongst us, uh, depending on the... Uh, on what you might be celebrating or anticipating. Hope that uh, holiday season is going well for you. And now let us leave you with uh, the way that uh, Raycom Sports uh, essentially said goodbye. And again, this is at the end of the last tournament game uh, the ACC played in 2019 uh, season. Uh, and this is the, the dulcet tones of, uh, let's see, this is Tim Brando saying goodbye on behalf of everybody at the time at Raycom Sports. And um, this is how it sounded in the uh, spring of 2019 as we send you off uh, until next week. Thanks for listening. Take care. That's a oh. huge honor. It's my honor to say so long for the many all-time greats that were obliged to be welcomed into your ACC basketball homes. Tim Brandt, Steve Martin, Bob Rathbun, Brad Nessler, Mike Patrick, Fred White, Jim Thacker, and yeah, Billy Packer. Yeah, he was the best boss, no doubt about it. Jimmy Rayburn, Ken Haynes, so many others that were part of it. There is the unofficial mayor of Chapel Hill, Freddie Kiger, who along with John Madry were on every one of these shows. The guys in the truck that made it so special. Well, Bob Dylan's lyrics in Forever Young, I think, come into play. May sunshine and happiness surround you when you're far from home. May you grow to be proud, dignified, and true. For yours truly, in a business that lacks stability, Raycom offered incredible stability. Every time I made a pass from one network to another, Raycom was always going to be a part of it. And that crew and these people are what made it so very special. G, again, so much fun being with you and many thanks. It doesn't get better than the ACC. It doesn't get better than the ACC tournament. And it doesn't get better than the family that we have here at Raycom. Congratulations to Duke for their championship. And as we say goodbye, we give thanks for you allowing us to sail with the pilot and spend 37 years broadcasting the best college basketball conference in the country. A family affair. And we congratulate Duke for their championship. Thanks to our team of men and women for their dedication and love of ACC basketball. We leave you with great memories and a celebration for to have been there and done that is what matters most. And now for the 1,664th and final time, Tim Brando saying so long from Raycom Sports.